If you'd open your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're continuing through the book of 2 Corinthians. In chapters 8 and 9, if you remember, Paul is uh, trying to help the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is suffering. They're impoverished. And the churches around in the Gentile world are much better off. Uh, The church in Corinth, we think, was wealthy even. So the Gentile churches are gathering money together and they're bringing it, they're sending it to Jerusalem. So in chapter 9, Paul tells them, the delegation is coming to Corinth to collect the money that you promised to give. So follow through. Follow through and make sure that you are ready to give this money that you promised to this delegation so that they might take it to Jerusalem. So it's a specific thing that Paul is addressing, but we learn a lot about giving just in these two chapters. Um, And really in all of Paul's letters, we see the same themes regarding giving. First of all, giving is, is something that we should view as worship. It's not just an intermission in the service where the plate goes back and forth. This should be viewed as part of our worship, as it has really um, from the earliest times of the church. Even in the Old Testament, it was viewed as worship. We should thank God for the privilege we have to give, um, and we should be generous, Paul says, especially as it relates to the generosity of God in sending Jesus Christ we also should be generous. And Paul makes that argument as well. So I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And we'll hear Paul expounding on these particular themes. I'll have you stand at the very end, but please remain seated for present as we read God's holy and inspired word. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers, so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. For these last six verses, please stand and honor the reading of God's holy word. As it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, 
which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Amen. Please be seated. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you have given us your word. Lord, we pray that as your word has been proclaimed and read publicly as you command, Lord, that it would be expounded accurately by my mouth, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Do your work, Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I do need to just say right up front, it's the standard disclaimer when you talk about giving. I don't need any of your money. Meadow Creek does not need any of your money. God does not need any of your money. The purpose in Paul's writing this was not to make sure that the church knew that if they didn't give, then God's mission would fail. That is certainly not the case. Just like our obedience is done primarily for our own good, so our generosity in giving is primarily for us and for our souls. God needs nothing from you. He needs nothing from us for His mission to succeed on the earth. The plan of redemption, the church of Jesus Christ, will power forward until the very end. But it should be a joyful thing to worship in giving, just like everything about our worship should be joyful, giving should be done joyfully. Hence the title of the sermon is The Joy of Giving. There's three points I'm going to make, and they actually make a little acronym if you take the first letter of each point. If you're not taking notes, you should still be able to remember to eat, E-A-T. We're going to talk first about the example of generosity from this Corinthian church, the example of generosity. Secondly, I'll exhort you to attempt to outgive God. Attempt to outgive God. And finally, we'll see that thanksgiving is always the result. The example of generosity, the attempt to outgive God, and thanksgiving being the result. Those are the three points that we will discuss. Paul, the first point, Paul holds up the church in Corinth as an example of generosity. Certainly, Paul has had trouble with this church. There have been false teachers who have deceived many in the church, and yet it seems that the church was still a very giving church. They had promised to send money to Jerusalem to help the great needs that we see there. So Paul, in verse 1 of chapter 9, says that it's superfluous. In other words, it's unnecessary to write about this particular gift. Because he knows their intentions, he knows their readiness to give. Indeed, he's held them up as an example for the churches of Macedonia, and that has inspired the churches of Macedonia to give as well. Paul, of course, is always a gentle writer. He's never more harsh than he needs to be in anything that he writes. And we see 
just the love in which Paul makes his, his assertions in this first verse. He's affirming the generosity and saying that it's regarding their intentions, it's unnecessary for him to even remind them. He's expecting the best from them, of course. And I don't think at all he's being deceitful as he proclaims his confidence that they will follow through. It's not that at all. He just knows that the saints, the brothers are coming to get the gift and he wants them to be ready. He doesn't want them to be embarrassed. He wants to make sure that they know the timetable and that they're ready so that all would be done well. He says in verse 3, I just want you to be ready when these men come that we would not be humiliated to say nothing of you. In other words, he's been boasting about their giving, their generous hearts to all the churches in Macedonia so that if they showed up and it was an afterthought or seemed forgotten, it would be humiliating. So Paul is giving them a warning. He's held them up as an example and he wants them to follow through so that it will really bless all of the churches. So he says, be ready. Be ready for this. He reminds them that their giving should not be unwilling. And again, this is, this is a principle for us today. Whenever we give to the Lord, whether your tithes and offerings, your weekly or monthly tithes and offerings to your local church, or whether you're giving a special gift like Paul is talking about here, a special gift to some needy people somewhere, that it should be willing. This is not an exaction, he's saying. This isn't like the IRS. That's an exaction. They're taking your money. Now with 80,000 agents, all with guns, they're taking your money. No, but this is a willing gift. Literally a blessing. That's the Greek word. This is a willing gift. So be ready. I've held you up as an example, so be an example, he says, in your giving. Well, Paul then continues after verse 5 to talk about a right attitude in giving. And I'm going to spend the majority of the sermon not talking about the example And we should all be an example in all of our Christian lives, not just in our generosity in giving, but the right attitude in giving. And he holds up the generosity of God in sending Jesus Christ. The generosity of God to save wicked sinners like me and you, like every boy and girl, every man and woman in my hearing, who has faith in Christ. That's a generous the most generous act in all of creation was the sending of Jesus to save us. And from that perspective, we see the second point, that we can't outgive God. We should attempt to outgive God, but we cannot do it. He says in verse 6, the point is this, literally in Greek, but this. The, the King James says, but this I say, That's really the point. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The word bountifully is blessings or blessingly, if that's allowed. Whoever sows blessings will also reap blessings. So certainly this is an agricultural metaphor. Many of us are thinking about planting our gardens Some of you have already done so. If you're late to the task like I am, you already are planning out what you're going to put in each row. Last year, unfortunately, 
I sowed very bountifully with the okra. And I reaped bountifully with the okra. I like okra, but I had bushels and bushels of okra. This is Paul's point, is if you just put a few seeds in, which I'm going to do with the okra this year, if you put a few seeds in, you're only going to get a few plants. You're only going to get a little bit of fruit. If you put a lot of seeds in, you're going to get a lot of fruit. He's relating that agricultural metaphor to giving, to giving. I'll discuss the abuses of that principle in just a moment. But the reality is that our generosity to others is basically used by God to bring great blessing to others and to ourselves. God will bless it. The more generous we are, the more we trust, the more the blessing. And Paul is just leaning on the Old Testament Scriptures, as well as the New Testament Scriptures. Proverbs 11, the principle is stated, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer while another withholds what he should give and suffers only want. In other words, one person seems so generous, almost crazily generous, and yet they seem to always be getting more and more and more. God is blessing them despite their reckless giving. While the one who's like, ah, I'm going to hold this back. I'll start tithing when I actually can afford to start tithing. And they never have enough. Jesus reiterates this in Luke chapter 6. He says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Certainly, he's speaking of more than just giving of offerings, of giving to the Lord. It's a principle for life. And we read Malachi 3 as our Old Testament reading, where God is addressing the reluctance of the Israelites of the church in the Old Testament to give to the Lord what he's commanded them. And he's told them, there's nothing at risk. I'm your provider. And he says, test me in this. One theologian said, this is the only place where God says, test me. Usually God is testing his church. But he says, test me in this. So the principle remains that we cannot outgive God. The more we think we're giving, the more we trust God, the more risk we seem to be taking in generous giving, the more God will supply in blessing. Again, remember that the widow, the poor widow who put in her last two mites, her last two half pennies, all she had to live on. She wasn't rebuked by our Lord. She was held up to the apostles. Seemingly commended by God, as opposed to the rich people who came and just put in gigantic amounts of money, but didn't risk anything. They didn't sacrifice at all. God's economy is so different from ours. We need to always remember, there's a reason why we pray every day, give us this day our daily bread. Our daily bread doesn't come from our hard work, although it does, of course. Our daily bread ultimately comes from God, period. No matter how hard you work, if he withholds your bread, he withholds your bread. His economy is different from ours. 
It's spiritual in nature. I remember uh, when we lived in Alaska, we were taking a, a 12 aircraft all the way to India. It was the first time we would ever, as American military, train with the Indian Air Force since World War II. It was this big deal, and I was blessed to be a part of it. And I started researching the place where we were going, and we found that there were numerous orphanages, lots of orphans, of course, lots of poverty, India being a very poor place generally. So I organized with another couple of people, we organized this, this, this movement to bring stuff to India and give to these orphanages. So we reached out to all of the base at Elmendorf Air Force Base. We reached out to families and asked if there's anything you would like to donate, please do. So our girls were very little uh, and they loved Barbies. I didn't like Ken. I didn't mind the Barbies, but um, they loved Barbies. They had each, you know, three or four of their favorite Barbies. And they decided that the children in India probably didn't have Barbies, and they wanted to give their favorite Barbie dolls. And each of them put in their favorite Barbie dolls into the pile. And as a dad, of course, you look at it and you're like, oh, honey. I know you love that so much, and yet you're so excited that they're so generous in their desire to bless the poor people there. So needless to say, my children never suffered, suffered for want of Barbies. I made sure of that. Like, we took their best Barbies, and when I came back, Barbies were overflowing. Such is the nature of our Heavenly Father, only infinitely more pure and wonderful and good. When he sees you sacrificing anything for his kingdom, we're to trust God with our daily bread. And this frees our hearts to be generous and not to be stingy. We know it pleases our Father in heaven to be genuine, genuine in our love for the saints and practically love them. And certainly our generous giving is only part of a greater principle of life we cannot outgive God in any way. Our giving is simply a reflection of a life sold out to God. We're to give up everything to serve Jesus, if you remember. We must even hate our own lives if we desire to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We must take up our cross daily. What does that mean? Die daily to follow Jesus Christ. So our talents, our giftings, our energies, rather than seek our own good and our own desires, we're to take up our cross and follow Jesus. In our attitudes, rather than living in pride or bitterness or hum all kinds of anger or hardness, we're to live in humility and grace. This means living for Jesus, striving to live for Christ, to sacrifice our lives for Christ every day. Every hour, every minute, every second. You know, that's really, really hard, Pastor. Well, that is. And yet it's only by the Holy Spirit that any of us can do any of it. We're never going to merit or earn our salvation. Certainly that is not the point. But those who have been changed by God will desire to live for God. They will reflect the values of the kingdom. 
and especially in their giving. There'll be no selfishness. We've said that a Christian is a person who is certainly not prideful. There's no such thing as a prideful Christian. Yeah, we all struggle with pride, but you know what I'm saying. There's no such thing as an unforgiving Christian. There's certainly no such thing as an ungenerous Christian. Why do I say that so confidently? Because the Scriptures declared and because the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. And when we are ungenerous, He corrects us. When we are unforgiving, He, he softens us. When we are prideful, He humbles us. And all the fruits of the Spirit abound in Christ. Those who have a dog in the earth's fight certainly will be stingy. But if you set your mind on things above, certainly that's the key. To focus on Jesus Christ. And Paul goes there, doesn't he? He points to the sacrifice of Christ as our example of generosity. So we cannot outgive God. It's not possible. He does provide a slight corrective in verse 7. If you look at verse 7, he says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. So remember how God saves us. He persuades us and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ by a work of the Holy Spirit. The same principle applies in our, our willingness to give. He persuades us and enables us to give. You should never feel pressure in a church setting. A high pressure call for salvation. Yes, I'm going to pressure you to be saved, but... An altar call, maybe. Like, it's one of the reasons why altar calls are problematic. Usually it's accompanied by very high-pressure tactics. It's usually some emotional manipulation going on, singing just as I am for 10 minutes, and then telling you, don't, don't go to hell. This is your last chance. As if the Holy Spirit is, is, is somehow beholden to change someone's heart immediately upon our asking, on our timetable in our way. There's no high pressure sales pitch in a church, especially when it comes to giving. You should never ever feel that. When we look at like televangelists, of course, we all know when we see it that that's just not right. Someone saying that if you if you give if you need uh, $10,000, we'll give 100 because he'll bountifully multiply it 100 fold. It's all ridiculous. It's evil. And we'll talk about the principle in a moment. But there's no pressure tactics in a church. The only thing you should ever feel pressure to do is to accept and worship Jesus Christ as Savior, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But here Paul is addressing a special need. It's a special need. And he's telling them, Decide in your heart what you're going to give. Don't be pressured or compulsion under compulsion. Don't, don't give something reluctantly that you didn't want to give. Think about it and decide and then give it. And certainly this is like our regular giving. 10% is kind of a starting point, it seems, in Scripture for giving. But our regular giving, if you're feeling like you're giving under compulsion, then I would say stop and wait until you're giving with joy. 
I remember often my children, I would tell them to do things and they were generally obedient. Hey, would you please go mow the grass? Would you please wash the dishes? Sometimes if I saw the grumbling heart, I would just say, okay, hold on. Dad will do it. Because I'm I don't have time really, but I can do it joyfully as under the Lord. And I don't know if you can right now or not. It's that same thing that we're talking about regarding our giving. Be cheerful when you give. He says in verse 7, God loves a cheerful giver. God loves cheerful worship. God loves our service to be done as unto the Lord cheerfully. And this isn't something you can work up. This comes from the Spirit's working on your soul. This comes from a regenerated heart. Because then and only then do you understand what Christ has done for you and your response is just cheerful service to God in thought and word and in deed. When he says God loves a cheerful giver, this also shows us something since Paul has pointed to Christ related to giving already. It shows us something about the attitude of Jesus Christ. If you think Jesus was told by the Father, you go to earth and save those lousy sinners. And Jesus said, oh, oh boy, okay. Then you don't understand Jesus. He cheerfully, it would seem, submitted to the Father's will. Indeed, He made it His own will. Joyfully to come to earth to fulfill His Father's purpose and His own purpose of redemption. We're still talking about outgiving God. Look at verse 8. Paul makes the exact argument in verses 8 through 11 that you cannot outgive God. And he's saying, test me in this. It's the same thing that Malachi said. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work He distributed freely. He has given to the poor. He's quoting Psalm 112. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies bread, seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Paul is saying you cannot outgive God. You cannot give too much. When it comes to blessing the church in Jerusalem, God has it. He's the one who gives your seeds. He's the one who gives you bread. He's the one who supplies all of your needs. He'll make all grace abound to you. In this context, Paul is certainly saying that God will sustain you. He'll sustain your estate, your wealth. You have nothing to fear. Nothing at all. Interesting. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, if you will, the Sermon on the Mount. It seems that whenever Jesus talks about money in a sermon, it's often with a word of comfort as well. Look at Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where there neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Paul is saying something like that, isn't he? He's saying, trust God. Don't lay up your treasures on earth. That's going to all go away. How do you store up for yourself treasure in heaven? Well, you live for God primarily, but in light of 2 Corinthians, Paul would say, 
You're generous with your treasure. Because you can't serve two masters, verse 24. Either you'll hate one and love the other, you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus is saying, trust God, take care of the needs of the church, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, and the treasures on earth will take care of themselves, basically. Well, look at what comes right after that teaching. Verse 25, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or drink or your body, what you will wear. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So Jesus is saying to us, That we can live this godly, God-focused, God-centered life and be generous and store up treasures in heaven and not on earth because He will take care of us. It's the same message that Paul is giving the Corinthian church as well. God is the one who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. And He'll supply and multiply your seed for sowing and for the increase of righteousness. For God loves a cheerful giver. So there is a word of caution here as well. This is not to be taken woodenly as as an exact promise. This isn't like rubbing the genie's lamp and you know that something will happen or some magic spell. Well, this says this and I did this and now God has to do this. Or like the the televangelist might say, you need $2,000, you need to sow 20 because he'll multiply it a hundredfold and you'll have your 2,000. No, that's not the way we read these Scriptures. Rather, they're like the Proverbs. They state general principles of truth. Charles Hodge is helpful here. He said there's three lessons that Scriptures like this will teach us. First, we need to know that this describes the tendency of things. Righteousness produces blessedness, just as it's the tendency of evil to produce misery. It's the tendency of things. Secondly, it describes the general course of divine providence. This is generally how God prospers the diligent and blesses the righteous. But certainly there are examples. Look at Job. He lost it all, didn't he? Look at the apostles. They were generous with their lives and they all died. Martyrs' deaths. Thirdly, even in this life, he says, righteousness produces a hundred times more good than unrighteousness does. A righteous person is much happier than a wicked person or a proud person. A godly person is much happier than a person in, sorry, a godly person is much happier in sickness, in poverty, or in grief than a wicked or proud person would be. So the principle is true and it's always true, but these are general tendencies and principles, not wooden promises that we stand upon and stamp our foot when it doesn't work out the way we think it should. But ultimately, Paul is saying that the church in Corinth should be generous and cheerful in their giving. They should attempt to outgive God because they can't do it. So they're an example to others. They should attempt to outgive God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And finally, they will note that it always produces thanksgiving. When you trust God, when you're generous with your life, 
The result is thanksgiving. He says it's not only supplying the needs of the saints, verse 12, but also the overflowing and many thanksgivings to God and the glory of God and the confession, the submission that comes from the confession of Christ and the generosity of the contribution. It causes the church to long for you and to pray for you. There's all these blessings that well up because of this particular generosity and it produces ultimately thanksgiving to God. Any obedience in the life of the church does the same thing. You will see this. When you see someone sacrificially serving someone else in the church, what's our response? Wow, thank you, God. Praise God. It results in thanksgiving. We will see this often because those whom God changes really are changed. When the Holy Spirit invades your soul, you are a changed person. You are a changed life and it will be seen by everybody. And it will always produce thanksgiving. There's no private faith. Why don't you ever come to church? Well, I just worship best at home. That's not real. There's no such thing as a private faith. Christ will have all of you or you will have none of Christ. And all fruit, all fellowship, all giving flows from the Holy Spirit who lives inside you. So Paul commends this church for how they're going to follow through. He says the generosity of your contribution, literally the generosity of your fellowship. The word contribution is in the Greek the word for fellowship. Which I think just really gives context to the whole point. The generosity, the fruit of Christian living really helps the fellowship of the saints. And the fellowship of the saints really is something we confess, we believe every week when we say the Apostles' Creed anyway. What is the fellowship of the saints that we believe in? It's that everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ all over the world is a brother and a sister. And we love them. Certainly this fellowship is a place of special love and special unity because it's the fellowship that he has ordained from time immemorial for this time right now in this place right now by his good providence. But the fellowship of the saints, Paul says, is strengthened by the giving of the church in Corinth, by the real Christian living This fellowship is a, a unity that crosses all national boundaries, doesn't it? It's, it's a, a unity that crosses all ethnic divisions as well. Paul says this often, and he, you think we have problems with different ethnicities that seem to be fighting. Paul had Greeks, he had Gentiles, he had Jews, and they all seem to always be fighting with each other. Reminds me of one of my seminary professors who's also a pastor. Um, <clears throat> it was during kind of the, the Black Lives Matter movement as it was kind of sweeping over America. And even Christian people were kind of befuddled by this and kind of tricked by this whole thing. But he's sitting in a Bible study and he had a very diverse uh, group in his Bible study. They all love the Lord. He said these people weren't naturally this way but this thing had kind of swept over them and there were some of the uh, the black people in the church who were saying things during the bible study like 
Well, it's time for my people to rise up. And he said, hold on. And he's a Korean American as well, so he could say things more freely than most of us probably. But he said, hold on. Your people are my people. Our people are our people. There's no black or white in the church of God. There's no Gentile or Jew in the church of God. We are all part of this fellowship with the believers. And living Christ-like in front of each other, Paul says, enables this fellowship, the overflowing of this fellowship, to thanksgiving, to meeting each other's needs, to glorifying God. It's that obedience to Jesus Christ that overflows in thanksgiving. I'm going to conclude with verse 15. It's the last verse of the chapter. He says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. His inexpressible gift. So different commentators will say this gift that he's talking about is maybe the gift that the Corinthian church is going to collect, the monetary gift, and he's going to take it, and thanks be to God for this gift. Or maybe it's the gift of the fellowship that he's talking about. I think the ones who get it right are the ones who would say that God's inexpressible gift has to be Jesus. You see, we can express the other gifts. The only gift that's inexpressible is the gift of Jesus Christ. He compares the attitude of generosity of giving to the sacrifice of Jesus. In chapter 8, if you remember, he says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He's appealing to the sacrifice of Christ and he's saying, Live generously for your brothers and your sisters, for this fellowship. That is the only inexpressible gift. The one inexpressible gift in all of creation is the gift of Jesus. You might have heard the sermon this morning and thought to yourself, I don't know that I've really been living that way for God. I don't live every moment for God. I don't strive to live every moment for God. But I think I want to. This might be the Holy Spirit telling you, you need to submit your life to Christ. You need to bow the knee today. Certainly you've, you've heard the Word of God. And I freely proclaim to you the good news of the Gospel that if you have faith in Jesus Christ then you will not perish, but you will have eternal life. Maybe, maybe you've, you've thought you had faith in Christ, but it's, it's only been at your terms. Maybe Jesus has kind of been an app on your phone and you just access it when you want it and then you put it back where it is and you close it. That's not faith in Christ, brothers and sisters. Faith in Christ is the entire phone. It's the operating system. It's... All that it is, if you don't have faith in Christ, if He's not the treasure of your life, if He's not the pearl of great price for you, then make Him so today. Because if you do not, you will not have any of Him. He will be your Lord or He will not be yours at all. And we can trust Him. The one who was rich and made Himself poor for our sakes 
we can trust him to care for us, to care for our bodies and care for our souls. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you in Jesus' name that you've given us your word. We thank you that you encourage us to live lives that are generous, to live godly lives in the light of your own sacrifice for us, to live lives that honor you and please you, that bless the fellowship of the saints, that results in great thanksgiving, great overflowing of thanksgiving, so that all will see the grace of God in our own lives. Lord, we pray that you would indeed work on our souls. Holy Spirit, do your work in each one of us. And until we meet this evening, we pray in Jesus' name that you would sustain us, that this day would truly be devoted to your worship. In Jesus' name.